the Vietnam War and the push for US involvement was a result of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. A lie. The Iraq War famously is a result of lies. Wars in Somalia are a result of lies. The Second World War and the German invasion of Poland was a result of carefully constructed lies. That is war by media. Let us ask ourselves of the complicit media, which is the majority of the mainstream press, what is the average death count attributed to each journalist? Julian Assange at the uh, top of the uh, show, and um, Anton Karras uh, from The Third Man, as if I need to tell you that. Anyway, I'm Randy Critical. This is Randy Critical, live on the fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom uh, episode, and I, I really can't believe this, it's episode 23, right, which means I'm like t doubling or tripling the pace because of the lockdown. So uh, the lockdown's been a silver lining in terms of my productivity. Otherwise, I'd go completely stir-crazy and uh, drown myself. Seriously, I'm going nuts. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's been a benefit here, a boon uh, to, to this program that uh, I'm under lockdown. Uh, and it's better than being in the studio because studio, I have to get the time. And when I get the time, I have to like do John Pilger at, at that time. And it's three o'clock in the morning in uh, Australia. So, and then it's like two o'clock in the afternoon uh, in, in Los Angeles. So, you know, when you do it this way, uh, you have more flexibility. At any rate, uh, this is episode 23. We're going to talk to a couple of lawyers today, uh, two street fighting lawyers, and one is Bob Boyle, who will be a witness at the uh, proceedings uh, when they continue in September for Julian Assange. Uh, he's a grand jury specialist, so he'll be talking about uh, that, his role, uh, what's happening, and also give us an update on Chelsea Manning. And then we'll talk to uh, Marty Stoller, who was my attorney uh, throughout that two-year uh, nightmare I had with Roger Stone. He's really like a five-decade civil rights free speech lawyer and has gotten a lot done. So two very special lawyers uh, will be joining us. Uh, but first, we're going to go to uh, Nathan Fuller from the Courage Foundation, who's been a regular on this program, maybe like 80% of them. And we're always happy to have Nathan on because uh, Courage Foundation is at the forefront of, of the legal defense uh, movement, not as a lawyer, but their legal defense support and other uh, events that they um, uh, put together. And Nathan is joining us, uh, I guess, in a lockdown situation. Did you live from? Did you live from <laughs> I did. I had to shave. You know, I had to change it up. Live yeah. from quarantine. Yep. Yeah, and, well, uh, it's amazing. You look 10 years young. You already looked like you were 21. Now you look like you're 11. <laughs> anyway. uh, but no, but thank you for having me on. And I uh, appreciate your increased productivity. Uh, the, the interviews have been really great and much needed for the cause. So. Yeah, thank you, uh, Nathan. So um, give us, uh, first of all, um, 
an update uh, on the uh, the proceeding uh, situation. Yeah, for those who who haven't seen, Assange has and his lawyers have been trying to postpone the hearing initially scheduled for May 18th uh, because the coronavirus has puts Assange at risk in prison, but he's also had extremely limited access to his legal team and ability to participate in the legal defense. So they needed that to be postponed, and so now it's postponed to September 7th. I see. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Has he been able to see anybody uh, since um, this Corona deal kind of like? uh, I mean, even even before this, he was in effectively solitary confinement with really limited visitation, but it's been even further curtailed. So uh, he just gets these like little 10 minute phone calls with his lawyers at a time. So they say, oh, you can have, you know, several 10 minute phone calls, but that's no way to handle really complex legal material in this like massive case. So is he spending time, most of it, in his cell? That's it? They're saying more than 23 hours a day in the cell. So it's really, it's, you know, brutal conditions, uh, worse than he was enduring before. And um, so he gets no visitors, uh, basically, and uh, gets uh, very little exercise, no sunlight. It's like worse than it was at the Ecuadorian embassy. What about, um, what about contact with, uh, with um you know, the guards there, I mean, they could be carrying the virus. Right, that's the thing. That's why his legal team has been pushing for uh, him to be released on bail. Other prisoners throughout the UK have been, you know, nonviolent, low-risk prisoners like Julian have been released uh, because they have no way to protect themselves in prison. But uh, his bail application was denied. Uh, And so, yeah, he's just not able to protect himself personally and, and at serious risk. I mean, others have already died at Belmarsh from coronavirus. So he, he uh, in that cell, I don't know how big it is and how dank it is. Does he have reading material there? Does he have uh, any way to spend time? Does he get to watch television? Um, I don't have inside access to his, uh, to, you know, what he has access to day to day. But uh, I, my understanding is it's, it's very limited. I, I know he's had legal papers taken from him before. So uh, I think they're making it pretty hard on him. It's really brutal. Uh, so that's coming up in September now. Uh, hopefully, the, back then, I, obviously, this is not going away. This uh, this virus is not going away anytime soon. And I got a feeling the gallery is not going to be packed like it was before, where we had 24 people in there. Right. And we're not even sure which gallery it will be. They're now saying they're going to have to look for a different court. Uh, previously, it was at Woolwich Crown Court, which is right by Belmarsh, uh, which is in way southeast London. But now they're saying it might not even be in London, or it might be uh, at a different one within London, but they think not at Belmarsh. So yeah, we don't know what that capacity would be like. And if this is uh, anything like it is now, it'll be even less access for the, the press and public to, to see the case. Well, at any rate, uh, I'm doing this. I'm, 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 I'm swinging away here doing these uh, shows. I know uh, you are uh, doing events. I guess you can't do any more outdoor events right now or even indoor events uh, like you did at uh, City College in, in Queens, which was a which was, you know, back then, looking at that, that place was, you couldn't get in. You know what I mean? I couldn't find a seat. It was packed. So imagine how the popularity of his cause would be uh, visible if you, we had continued, you had continued having these events. If that place was packed, back then it was a big arena. Right. I mean, leading up to his February hearing, we had a string of great public events in D.C., in Los Angeles, New York. Uh, we had uh, one in, in the Bay Area as well. And so, yeah, public uh, 
awareness of the case and support was increasing. People were coming out and meeting other people supportive of the cause, making these kind of connections. And uh, yeah, so we can't do that anymore. So we've moved all the activism online. We do these video panels uh, on Zoom, but you can also watch on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter. Right, and um, you can get those, the ones, the past ones, you can get at um, the Curtis yeah. Foundation website or... Yeah, defend.wikileaks.org slash webinars. That will have the history of all, of all these video events uh, over the last several weeks. And you have one planned on Sunday. Yeah, on Sunday, we're going to have one uh, based with the LA Group, ACLU of Southern California and National Lawyers Guild of Los Angeles members. Uh, and I are going to discuss uh, coronavirus in prisons, uh, as well as the other aspects of uh, Assange's case. So what he's facing and then what, what we're facing if, if he's extradited. Well, what time does that start, uh, New York time? So that's 3 p.m. New York time. That's 8 p.m. London time and noon on the West Coast. You got it, man. You know those hours. <laughs> uh, yeah, so check it, find us on Twitter at, at Courage Found, so you can find the link and all more information there. It's at Courage, F-O-U-N-D, Found. Okay. Yep. Courage Found, okay. And not okay. you. We can't find you on, on, on Twitter, but you know it's at Courage Found. We will find you. Right? That's me. That's where right. I am. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> any last words before we uh, head out to, uh, up to Harlem and talk to uh, Bob Boyle? No, I'm looking forward to hearing it. I appreciate your work, Randy. Thank you very much. Nathan Fuller, Executive Director of the Courage Foundation, doing tremendous work. And uh, keep it up, uh, Nathan. All right. Uh, we'll be right back uh, with attorney uh, Robert Boyle uh, right after this. Uh, we got New York kind of music. It's a New York day for me. We're playing New York uh, theme music. We'll be right back. I don't know what it is. Somebody else chose it. We'll be right back. <laughs> They sentenced me to 20 years of boredom For trying to change the system from within I'm coming now, I'm coming to reward them First, we take Manhattan Then we take Berlin I'm guided by a signal in the heavens I'm guided by this birthmark on my skin I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons First we take Manhattan Then we take Berlin Okay, a great New York tune. Um, I'm Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico uh, live on the fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. And as promised, uh, we are now being joined by a civil rights union criminal justice uh, lawyer, uh, Robert Boyle, who has a long history of representing uh, the most downtrodden political uh, prisoners uh, in this country. Bob, uh, thank you for uh, being part of the show again. It's been a while. Yeah, thank you, Randy. Great to be here. Yeah. Um, Bob, uh, I, there's a lot of cases I want to go over with you, but let, I want to focus, first of all, on the, uh, the case of uh, Julian Assange. I, you know, it's been moved up till September 
you've been uh, announced as one of the witnesses. Do you have any idea what, what your status is right now in, in that case? Well, the, apparently the court will hold hearings in September um, where the defense, that is uh, Julian's attorneys, will be able to present evidence as to why the, he should not be extradited on the grounds that it's basically a political prosecution. And there is an exception to the extradition treaty for political prosecutions. So what they will hope to do, my understanding, in September is to present a series of witnesses to prove, at least circumstantially, that um, the uh, indictment, uh, which came only after a change of administration, was politically motivated. And uh, you actually, you believe that, or can you comment about that? Well, um, I think just in terms of what's already in the public record, you have um, an investigation that took place, and I may get the years wrong by one or two back in 2010, when, you know, Chelsea Manning um, was, th those disclosures were made. A decision by someone was apparently made not to indict Julian Assange back then or anyone else. Then there's a change of administration. Obama is no longer president. There's a new Justice Department. And here we go. There's an indictment based upon, I think, no new evidence that they didn't know about back in 2010 or 2011. Um, so it clearly, I think, shows circumstantially that um, the indictment is uh, and was politically motivated. Um, and remember, Chelsea Manning, in her statements in the court-martial trial, was clear that she did this on her own. Uh, it was her decision. No one urged her to do anything in terms of those disclosures. And has been very clear about that and, you know, has suffered for it. Well, you, you've been, you like, are an expert on, on, uh, on grand juries. You wrote the uh, third edition of the, uh, of the uh, grand jury project uh, uh, deal on uh, edition of uh, legal, uh, legal treatise on uh, representation of witnesses before federal grand juries, not even state, federal grand juries, which is, right in the purview of what you wrote. And so they went to you because you have this expertise. Where did you get this expertise on grand juries, Bob? Oh, well, that's a, you know, that, that's, a, that's a long, long story, but there's- The short a, version. Yeah, well, you know, there's a long history in the federal system of use of the grand jury to target political activists. And when I was first coming up as a younger lawyer, Back in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, I was very fortunate enough to have as mentors people like Margaret Kunstler, who is an expert on grand juries, Elizabeth Fink, Michael Deutsch, and was able to work on some of the cases that they were doing where the grand jury was used for political purposes. Um, and so, you know, I... Um, I guess, you know, baptized by fire because they put me right in the middle of all of it, but I was very fortunate enough to have some brilliant people be my teachers. Uh, the, um, 
this this case here, the, the way the grand jury has operated, it's in secret. Tell tell us, uh, you know, the backdrop of what goes on in a case like uh, Mr. Assange's. Well, you know, a, a lot of it is speculation because it is secret. So you you don't know for a fact what is in fact what is going on. You know, we do know that. Um, in, in his particular situation, in this particular grand jury, you know, you have Chelsea Manning stating under oath that she did everything by herself with no encouragement for anyone, but yet she's subpoenaed to the grand jury, um, which is investigating Julian Assange, and they maintain others, but they've never identified any others. And the U.S. attorney saying, well, we want to question Chelsea Manning about that. And um, it was an improper use of the grand jury for several reasons. Um, one, I believe that they subpoenaed Chelsea and put her in jail in order to get to coerce her to change her story and to lie and to say, oh, yeah, you know, Julian Assange or WikiLeaks put me up to this. Uh, and they coerced, you know, with the threat of prison over her head. And in fact, she went to prison for it. Another reason why I think the grand jury in her case was um, uh, coercive was that the government wanted to put her in the grand jury, freeze her testimony for the upcoming trial and try to shake it up. And this is a long-standing use of the grand jury for improper purposes. So, you know, unfortunately, the legal, the courts have upheld all this kind of stuff. And, you know, Chelsea remained in prison for a long time until she was just released recently. Well, the, the, the whole uh, use of, of a grand jury, it, it definitely favors the prosecution. Does the defense have any uh, cards to play in, in the uh, grand jury proceedings, particularly in a case like this? Well, you, you, you look, we always fight, even when the law is against us. So yeah, we, uh, we do make motions to um, quash subpoenas, meaning to throw out a subpoena so the person doesn't have to testify. You, you make motions alleging uh, improper use of the grand jury to prepare for trial which was really why they went after Chelsea. Um, and, you know, you are with your client who in particularly in Chelsea's case was taking a principled position not to cooperate with the government and you provide that support to the client. Ultimately, the law is terrible uh, and people end up going to jail, but sometimes you get a victory. And it's important for lawyers to stand by their clients in these kind of circumstances. Well, this one really has a smell to it, this uh, a really bad odor to it, uh, this grand jury uh, proceedings uh, in relation to Julian Assange. Uh, what, what is uh, different about this uh, than others that you've uh, examined in the past? Well, there's probably more similarities than differences, but... Certainly the use of the Espionage Act, which I'm not an expert in, um, is raised it to another level. Because you have all those years ago when the, there were the initial disclosures that Chelsea acknowledged, 
Um, there was no claim about violation of the Espionage Act by anyone. And then years later, after a change in administration, they kind of upped the ante here, um, charged Julian Assange with violations of the Espionage Act, which carries draconian punishment. And uh, so I think that that's a little bit what sets this apart. And it's also, I think, the issue of the First Amendment and journalism. Um, uh, you know, information was kind of plopped onto WikiLeaks website. Um, and I don't know a lot of that stuff about how, how you upload or anything like that. And like good journalists, they published it. And that's what journalism is all about. That's what the New York Times did in the Pentagon Papers case. And there, there's scores of other examples. So that's another thing I think that sets this apart. What, 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 what would be, uh, uh, you know, the ramification, the consequences of if he is successfully extradited, tried and convicted, what, what kind of message would that send? Well, you know, let's, let's hope we never get there. Let's hope he's not extradited. And if extradited, that um, the case doesn't go forward, that it's dismissed. And if there's a trial that, you know, people understand what's going on. But certainly, obviously, it's an issue of, of the First Amendment. If you, someone finds that our government committed war crimes and information unsol is unsolicited documenting that, and it's then published, and that whoever publishes it is then prosecuted. Yeah, obviously there's an enormous chilling effect on uh, not only journalism, but also our ability to expose government misconduct. What, what do you think the motivation is uh, by, uh, by the Trump administration and in particular the Justice Department under William Barr in this case? Oh, you know, I mean, I would let them speak for themselves, frankly, you know, who knows what their you know what their motivation is. You're dealing with megalomaniacs who have no respect for the law. So we are, talk we are talking with Robert Boyle, who's uh, represented uh, many clients, political uh, prisoners, uh, political cases. Uh, let's uh, get an update. Uh, I know you're uh, close with the attorney Moyer uh, for uh, Chelsea Manning. Uh, can you give us a little update on what's happening there? Only you know that thank goodness she's out and she's trying to heal. Um, as many people know, you know, she served hard time in military jail and then hard time in, uh, for the grand jury contempt. And, um, you know, she, she needs time to heal. And that's what, you know, that's what she's doing. Does she face uh, any risk of, of being called back before a grand jury? You know, um, I wouldn't want to give the government any ideas, but you know, the law on that is pretty bad. Um, she could be subpoenaed for trial, but right now um, she's free and hopefully taking care of herself and um, uh, you know, getting her um, you know, strength back. Prison is not easy. 
Yeah, it, it's amazing the ordeal that she has undergone a, a full year in prison after spending seven years in prison. But she is really uh, re resilient and resolute and, 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 and just loaded with integrity. Uh, and you don't see that in a lot of people. I mean, they, they thought they would be able to roll her, roll her over and, and intimidate her. But she, she, were you amazed that she did not roll over? You know, um, the way Chelsea conducted her military trial, um, I think spoke to a real resolute, resoluteness. And so I wasn't surprised when she resisted the grand jury subpoena. Um, you know, Chelsea probably had, and I don't know this if this happened or not, probably had every opportunity to save herself by lying against someone else. And she didn't. Yeah. That doesn't happen often, I suppose, because they really put the squeeze on you. Uh, uh, Bob, so if, if, um, if he is extradited, he would go before this, uh, this um, in a courthouse in the Eastern District of Virginia, which has uh, like a 100% conviction rate in areas of national security. Uh, do you think that it would be any different if he was brought there? Well, you know, of course, he'll be the underdog, right? But what, and this comes from my mentors as well, you fight. He'll have an excellent legal team and he'll fight. You know, that's what, you know, William Kunstler taught us too. He took on some, you know, horrible cases and ended up winning and, you know, and Liz Fink always used to say, dare to struggle, dare to win. So it's, it's not a foregone conclusion, and you have to fight. Uh, well, speaking of that, I'm going to play this clip of Bill Kunstler. This uh, is a clip from uh, Emily and Sarah Kunstler's documentary, um, Disturbing the Universe. And uh, we're going to play it right now. Uh, it's, a, it's a little clip, and I think this is right after the Chicago 7 uh, convictions before they were overturned. And uh, give us your thoughts on the other side. Sure. And that's the terrible myth of organized society, that everything that's done through the established system is legal. And that word has a powerful psychological impact. It makes people believe that there is an order to life and an order to a system, and that a person that goes through this order and is convicted has gotten all that is due him. And therefore, society can turn its conscience off and look to other things and other times. And that's the terrible thing about these past trials, is that they have this aura of legitimacy, this aura of legality. I suspect that better men than the world has known, and more of them, have gone to their deaths through a legal system than through all the illegalities in the history of man. Six million people in Europe during the Third Reich, legal. Sacco Vanzetti, quite legal. The Haymarket defendants, legal. The hundreds of rape trials throughout the South where black men were condemned to death, all legal.
Jesus, legal. Socrates, legal. And that is the kaleidoscopic nature of what we live through here and in other places. Because all tyrants learn that it is far better to do this thing through some semblance of legality than to do it without that pretense. Okay, so uh, there Bill is talking about uh, these uh, trials and these show trials, and uh, what do you make of that? Do you, do you uh, concur with, uh, with what, what he was saying there? Well, sure. I think it, what he's talking about is what's legal is made by those who are in power, and what's illegal is made by those who are in power. And we can't, the law is not something that's this absolute that they like to teach us in law school. It's political and it's bent to serve the political needs of those who are in power. You know, obviously there's some, um, you know, instances of, you know, moral stuff and what and whatnot. But I think the, the point that Bill is making here is, you know, just because someone is convicted doesn't mean that they're morally reprehensible and because they were convicted by a corrupt legal system. And just because something isn't charged as a crime doesn't mean it isn't a crime when it's done by a corrupt legal system. And, you know, that's a lesson that, you know, you don't learn in law school but it's, it's a very important one. Um, you know, just, you know, uh, to bring up COVID for a second, you know, um, and releasing people from prison, the governors around the country, including Cuomo, well, we'll think about it, but only not for those people convicted of violent crimes, you know? So they deserve to die in jail if you did a robbery. Right. Uh, you deserve to die in jail. Well, talk about that, Bob, uh, because Cuomo has been on television a lot lately. Uh, you know, Iran has released 80,000 uh, prisoners. Uh, you know, other states have released prisoners. Ohio has, and uh, even in Georgia and Alabama, I think, have uh, released uh, prisoners. Uh, this state has uh, been kept it very close uh, to its vest uh, and not given uh, too many um uh, uh, you know, early releases for those people who are uh, possibly, uh, you know, uh, could be affected by this corona, uh, vulnerable to uh, the coronavirus. Uh, it almost seems to be getting a free ride. Well, you know, he's in juxtaposition to the guy in Washington. So anyone would appear rational and empathetic when you look at what um, the alternative is, and I think that is, you know, that is part of it. Um, but yeah, in New York state, I think the latest plan for New York state prisons is they will consider release for people who have been, would be released within 90 days anyway. They'd consider immediate release, but there's no plan to 
consider release, for example, for people who are over the age of 65 and have serious medical conditions uh, and who are particularly vulnerable. That's not, from what I understand, not even um, on the plate at this moment. And other states, you're right, have done better. And even other countries have done con uh, much better. I, I, one particular case is a gentleman up in, who was 73 years old, who just died of uh, COVID-19 up in Sullivan. Can you talk about that? I'm, not, I'm unfamiliar with that case, but I know in Sullivan as of today, because there's another case out of there, um, there are at least 15 inmates who have tested positive for COVID and who were sick. And um, uh, if there's 15, you know there's 100 because there's dramatic uh, carriers. And um, so, you know, the, the state is maintaining that they're doing a great thing by isolating those 15. Well, what about everyone else? Um, and it's, you know, it's a horrifying situation to be, be locked in a cell, you know, thinking you might be infected or thinking any minute you might get infected. How bad is the, um, or how, how good or how is the uh, medical uh, uh, treatment uh, inside uh, New York's uh, 60 prisons that are still operating? Oh, it's, it's um, you know, it's abominable in general. Um, Many years ago, probably 25 or 30 years ago, um, the medical um, treatment was privatized. So you have HMOs doing bids to medical services in various prisons. And of course, they're about to profit. And so, um, you know, the treatment is, is abominable. Um, not in every situation, but in general. Uh, the uh, Rikers Island, which I, I know it's, uh, it's a city jail, but the state certainly could intervene, uh, was, uh, had the highest percentage I, until Cook County may have uh, jail took over of uh, uh, people infected with, uh, with uh, COVID-19. Uh, uh, what, what makes jails and prisons uh, so susceptible to uh, the spread of viruses like this. I know it happened with tuberculosis. When my father was in prison in 1935, uh, he actually worked the uh, medical uh, ward, uh, the TB ward, and uh, it was a horrible uh, outbreak of uh, TB back then. So what makes prisons uh, such a breeding ground for this virus? Well, I mean, just think of the day-to-day -day life. Um, uh, in you know what's going on in prison, the the social distancing, which we're able to practice on the outside, you can't really practice in prison. Um, the mess halls are crowded, the blocks are crowded when inmates are moved. Many inmates have to be escorted by guards wherever they go, so you're within a foot or two of another human being. Um, we know that this particular virus is extremely contagious and it's airborne. And, you know, masks and gloves can only do so much. The showers are used by several people at a time. Um, the food is distributed in front of someone's cell. I think that they've changed it up a little bit. But um, 
just all of these things add to um, the increased risk. I mean, you know, it's, you know, look, if you live, and, and it's not so much different in poor communities on the outside, if you live in a NYCHA project, right, and you have to ride the elevator, or you have to take the stairs because the elevator doesn't work, people are on top of each other, right? Yeah. And they're, and they're more susceptible to be, to be infected. And I think the statistics show that, where the infections are, are in the poor and, uh, you know, people of color communities. Well, you know, at, at Rikers, a lot of the, uh, the correction officers do come from communities of color. I think uh, statewide, that has the highest percentage. Uh, the, the further north you go, the further south you go, mentality-wise, uh, with the guards up in the Attica and Auburn and places like that, most of the guards are white. But down here, they come from communities of color. So their guards, they come back, and I, I, I would think that it would be easily spreadable in those community, communities uh, when, when they're working the jails and then coming out of the jails, whether it be local jails, holding cells, precinct jails, or Rikers Island. Yeah, no, it's, you're absolutely right. I think um, it's, it goes both ways. The guards can pick it up in the jail and bring it home, or they can pick it up at home and bring it to the jail. It's a, it's, it's, it's a double um, risk factor. Are we looking at a big scandal here in, in, in the making uh, in our prisons? Are they suppressing uh, the, the, the real number of uh, prisoners that have been exposed to this virus? Well, I think um, there are some people at the federal defender's offices around the country who, um, and this is in the federal system, who um, are keeping on t trying to keep on top of, of how they're doing statistics, but they've you know, I, I'm fortunate to be on their email lists and they point out that, you know, sometimes the numbers just don't add up. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think time will tell. Time will tell. Uh, there was a report that I, um, I haven't read yet, but somebody emailed me about MDC in Brooklyn uh, that uh, there's a scandal brewing there. Do you know anything about that? I've just, just probably what you've read, but um Remember, MDC in Brooklyn was the, was it a year ago or two years ago? Was a year the, ago. They didn't have heat for a month. Right. People were, you know, it's an incredibly mismanaged facility. Yeah. So uh, this was a real damning report on that. Uh, so let's say someone like Assange comes to the U.S. and he's in a holding cell. It would be something like MCC or MDC. Uh, but down there in Virginia, how susceptible, since he has a lung condition, uh, would he be uh, to uh, catching the uh, coronavirus? Well, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I mean, I think the facts you laid out and what we know would make him extraordinarily um, susceptible. Right. We're talking with Bob Boyle, um, civil rights attorney, uh, criminal justice attorney, uh, and an expert on uh, grand juries. He's written the third edition of the uh, grand jury project on grand juries. Uh, I want to go into some of your other cases, Bob. How did you uh, get involved in uh, criminal justice and, and civil rights uh, representation? Uh, what, what sparked your interest in that? Well, I was a um, somewhat of an activist in college. 
in the mid-70s at State University in New Paltz, New York. And um, I began volunteering along with some other students at a nearby prison called Greenhaven. Yeah. Greenhaven Maximum Security Prison in Stormville, New York. I've been there many times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, back then, this was a few years post Attica Prison Rebellion. And the, and, the, and the prisons were kind of, I wouldn't say loose, but they invited people from the communities in to participate. And I began volunteering with what was called the Black Studies Program. And I met several former Panthers, Black Panthers, who were then incarcerated and who essentially organized me and others to do, you know, to become, to do that kind of work. One of them was Daruba bin Wahad. Another was H. Rap Brown. There were a few others as well. Um, and so I was fortunate to get, you know, I was, <laughs> I was going to college for education, but I really learned a lot inside the jail. Well, yeah, but you were already predisposed in, in that area. You went to New Paltz. I mean, unless you came from an upper-class family, when you went to law school, you went to New Paltz and all of that. Uh, right. Your politics, because you and I are roughly the same age, uh, kind of shaped in the 60s? Well, and a, a little bit later, you know, I was certainly anti-war, anti-Vietnam War. And, you know, you remember back then, it was cool to be anti-establishment and anti-war, right? In the late 60s and early 70s, you know, those folks had the best parties. Um, and so- <laughs> Certainly did. Certainly so that was did. so, you know, I kind of, yeah, and, you know, I went to moratoriums and some demonstrations, but it was really in college that, um, uh, you know, that it, it took on a life of its own. You know, my, you know, no, I wasn't from an upper class background, but my parents were kind of mainstream Kennedy Democrats. But right. my dad, um, no matter how, you know, he became a lawyer as well. Um, but he was an adult during the, the Great Depression. And so he remembered how Republicans screwed the average person. And that, really influenced the rest of his life. And he passed it along to me and my brothers and sisters. Yeah, that's good. And then along the way, you met the great Bill Kunstler. So tell me the influence Bill had on you. Um, wow. You know, there's so, there's so much. Um, he was, Bill had, he impressed upon me a great sense of what's, unjust and particularly racial injustice and when he confronted a situation that was unjust and particularly racism you know bill would it was hard hard for him to say no to the people who came and that really is example in that regard and his and also just his guts standing up in court time after time. And, you know, I met him long after, you know, the, not long after, but after he was famous from the Chicago trial and other things. But Bill, you know, was able to speak truth to power. And, you know, he had, he would stand up for people and, um, you know, and was a great 
was just, I would, you know, it was just great in court, watching him cross-examine a witness and take that witness apart. Um, he was amazing. He was amazing. I got to see him a few times in court, uh, the Thomas Manning uh, case, uh, sure. the judge Embriani. I drove him and, uh, and, um, uh, um, Lynn Stewart. Lynn Stewart. I used to drive him over there, and it was just uh, so amazing to, to go to uh, New Jersey. I, I forgot, maybe it was Union City uh, Courthouse there. Uh, it was state court, and uh, this Manning and what was the other guy's name? Thomas Richard Williams. Yes, all right. And uh, Bill did it. Those guys wouldn't stand up when the judge came in. They wouldn't, and neither would Bill. Uh, so he definitely was in tune with the, with, the, uh, with the attorneys. And what really struck me back then was when we arrived in the courtroom, we'd park the car, and then we'd walk into the courthouse, and there were uh, a lot of African-Americans uh, floating around uh, the courthouse, uh, and they would come up and, like, ask Bill for his autograph. They told, they, those people at that courthouse totally revered Bill Kunstler. Is that, uh, is that unusual? Oh, I think, I don't think it's certainly not usual, but I remember, uh, you know, a few times just being with him on the streets in Harlem. And, um, you know, you would think, you would think he was the mayor. Um, and, you know, and um, people coming up and hugging him and, you know, Bill loved to hug and kiss. So, you know, he was, <laughs> he was a politician that way, but he, he, he loved that. And, It'd be and, difficult for him to operate that way now, right? Oh yeah, oh, he had yeah. to, to throw him a kiss six feet apart. A, a very I don't, I don't know. I don't. He wouldn't do very well with social distancing. No, I don't think he really was a, a, a very rare, one of the most important figures, illegal figures uh, in, in U.S. history, and he had an impact. I know on me because uh, I met him in '86. I introduced him to Joey Heatherton. And it was really a ruse to meet him. Uh, I went to him instead of some other lawyer. It was so odd to bring this woman into his, and he made it into a, uh, uh, you know, uh, a kind of a civil rights case. But it's a long story. But I got to meet him, and we became uh, very good friends from that point on. Um, so uh, let me uh, tell us about Daruba right now, his story, and how that was resolved, and what what he's doing now. Well, uh, Daruba was one, Daruba bin Wahad, um, originally known as Daruba Moore, was one of the leaders of the New York Panthers. Um, and he was indicted in what was called the Panther 21 conspiracy case, where they charged the leadership of the New York chapter with things like trying to blow up the botanical gardens and Macy's and all of that. Um, and after a two-year trial, they were all acquitted, included among them being Afeni Shakur, Tupac Shakur's mom. Um, and, but shortly thereafter, Daruba was charged with the attempted murder of two New York City police officers. And after three trials, he was convicted. And he brought a civil rights lawsuit charging that he was framed. And it was through that lawsuit, which I would first worked on as a law student and then as, as lead counsel, that we were able to obtain about 300,000 pages of FBI files on the counterintelligence program COINTELPRO against the Black Panther Party. And amongst those files was proof 
that he was in fact innocent and was framed. Um, and after 19 years, we were able to get him out of prison um, in 1990. And, you know, and since then he's, you know, lived around the world, you know, currently lives down south um, and uh, is one of the success stories in the cases of political prisoners. The other being, of course, Geronimo Pratt from the West Coast. Um, you know, but sadly, too many of our political prisoners didn't get out of prison, died in prison. And um, there's some even still in jail today. One of those being, uh, uh, being uh, Mumia, and you're working on a, a Mumia uh, appeal right now, or you're somehow involved? Well, I'm, he does have an appeal of his conviction, but um, I've re been representing him for years on the aspect of his case. You know, he suffered from hepatitis C, and um, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections were, was refusing to treat him and others with the um, new antiviral drugs. And we went to court and we actually got an injunction from a federal judge requiring that they do treat him. And he was given treatment and it was successful, but by the time he was successfully treated, his condition had advanced to cirrhosis. And so the lawsuit still exists to try to make the Pennsylvania Department of Correction accountable for really forever damaging his liver and his health. Wow. All right. So uh, th that's what's happening with me. I've been there way too long. Bill Kunstler, I know, uh, was, uh, was working uh, in his capacity in some way uh, with, with Mumia. He did a lot of public events on his behalf. But one case uh, that uh, before he died, I, I took him to the airport many times uh, to fly uh, to see uh, Leonard Peltier. And uh, you know how he would get uh, when he was in traffic, Bill. I remember one time I was driving him to LaGuardia and got stuck on, um, uh, on the Williamsburg Bridge. What's the name of that street that leads into the Williamsburg Bridge? Uh, Delancey Street. Delancey Street. Street. And there was traffic and he got out of the car yelling at a truck that was stuck in front of us. But he was stuck behind another car. He was going, he says, I'm not going to make it. He was literally almost crying because he said, this guy is going to die in jail. He was so emotionally wrapped up in that case of Leonard Peltier. And now it's uh, 25 years later and he's still there. And you would think he would be released with the danger of COVID spreading into that facility. Yeah, um, Bill worked for years on Leonard's case and um, had really compelling evidence that Leonard is innocent, you know, which he is. Uh, and um, he really dedicated a lot of, of effort, you know, to his, you know, to that case. And, you know, I, yes, Leonard should be out now, but, you know, the president that preceded this one, you know, uh, President Obama had the opportunity to commute Leonard's sentence and didn't do that. Even the FBI agents uh, involved in that, and I, and I think uh, the judge or the district attorney in that case or the federal uh, prosecutor uh, wrote a letter in support of releasing uh, well, yeah, No, because it was, it was initially they had Leonard being the trigger person in this uh, in this case of the killing of the FBI agents. 
it was almost conclusively demonstrated that it couldn't have been by both scientific evidence, ballistics, or whatever it was. Um, and to the to the to the proof, you know, that the FBI and, as you say, some prosecutors even called for his release. And the government's position was, well, maybe he didn't shoot, but we still think he was there. Well, but you you went to trial saying he was the shooter. Now you're saying, well, he wasn't the shooter. He was just there. Isn't that unjust? It's a, ter it's a terrible situation. Just a horrible situation. That's what's happened to Leonard Feltier. Uh, there are a lot of political prisoners in this country. Uh, let's hope that Julian Assange is not the next one. Any final uh, thoughts about uh, the Assange case before we sign off here, uh, Bob? Well, let's just hope there won't be an Assange case in this country uh, and that um, the English courts will um, show the American courts that they have more backbone and um, will do the right thing. Well, uh, so uh, you're definitely going to testify there on behalf of the defense, either by video or if you can actually fly to London, which is probably unlikely because it's only four months away. Well, you know, th that'll be up to uh, uh, Julian Assange's legal team, how to best proceed. So, you know, I'm at their service, you know, however they want it to happen. All right. Uh, Robert Boyle, uh, thank you for all the work that you've done. Thank you for uh, affording us uh, this time. Uh, continue, uh, continued success or continued, uh, you know, progress, whatever, going up that hill like Sisyphus and hopefully get over it uh, once in a while because I know it's a tough road to hoe. Uh, Robert yep. Boyle, um, right. how do people thank reach you. you, by the way? People want to people reach you, want to... Uh, enlist your services uh, legally? How do people reach you? You could, you could probably just just Google me and you have all, have all of that. Okay. Yeah, I think it's pretty up to date. All right. Thanks a lot, Bob. Thank you. Bye-bye. You must take the A train If you want to go to Hollow Come on and take Take the A train Okay, um, that was uh, Gershwin there uh, with a very special tune. Hi, I'm Randy Critical. This is Randy Critical live on the fly.
Assange's Countdown to Freedom, episode 23. And as promised, uh, my man, uh, one of the great civil rights, free speech attorneys, Fourth Amendment attorneys uh, in our nation's history, and that is the great Marty Stoller. And uh, he comes from his summer home, now his spring home in uh, up in Maine. Thank you, Marty. Good seeing you again. And it's a pleasure to, to be with you. You know, it's the first uh, time. I, 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 I also have to thank you for the compliment. Well, it's a true, con it's, a, it's true, everyone says it. And I'm reading all these articles and uh, you were the hero of the OWS movement. You were the, you were the hero of the uh, Republican uh, convention in New York in 2004 movement. So a lot of people really love you. And I know you didn't get rich doing it, uh, but um, I uh, just want to thank you for all the work that you've done. You certainly didn't get rich off of me on the, uh, on the Russiagate uh, affair. Well, Randy, you, wait, wait. You got you to let me correct something. I was not a hero. All I did was I, I acted as a lawyer, and I did my best as a lawyer that I could to help as many people as I possibly could get back on the street and do what they had to do. Right. Uh, just because I handled more cases than anybody else did, all that means is that I had the capacity to do it. Well, and, I, one of my, and one of the cases I handled was you. Yes, all right, and let's go back first, before we get to me, I'm gonna go back to uh, the Republican uh, convention. I didn't get arrested, um, but uh, a lot of people did. How did you get involved in that? And how many people did you represent? Well, uh, shortly before the Republican National Convention, I became the president of the New York City chapter of the National Lawyers Guild. And probably the main reason that I was asked to be president that year was because of my experience with the Guild's Mass Defense Committee. I was a, by then, a very professional attorney representing people who got arrested at demonstrations. We expected a substantial number of arrests to take place during the RNC, and we had provisions for that. We uh, work with the Civil Liberties Union, but we also set up our own network of, of legal observers. And by the time the convention got going and they started arresting people, we were in place. I was the president of the chapter and we had an incredibly powerful defense team set up to deal with the people who got arrested. I see. Uh, one of the things we couldn't deal with is the fact that the police disappeared our clients for 48 to 72 hours by spiriting them away to Pier 72 uh, to keep them off the street. Um, and we had to fight like crazy to get our clients uh, out of jail. Was that illegal, what they did, putting those people on Pier? I remember that. They put people on the Pier. Sarah Kunzer was arrested as well. Uh, yes, and a number of our legal observers were arrested and some of our lawyers. Um, was it illegal? Well, there was a monster civil rights lawsuit brought after the, uh, the convention was over and after all the criminal cases were dismissed. It was settled, most of it was settled, for a, the most astronomical sum that's ever been paid in a civil rights in New York City, about $18 million. There no. were several people, however, who refused to settle the case, and they wanted to go to trial to prove the illegality of what happened to them. And so we actually took the case to trial for these four plaintiffs and won. We got substantial damages in federal court. Um, and so definitely the answer is it was definitely illegal. So, so in other words, when, you, when they won their cases, uh, they, they were all thrown out of, out of court. The other people who settled before, did they drop charges? 
Now, all the all the criminal cases resulted in most about 93, 94 percent of the criminal cases resulted in dismissals. Right. Um, there was only one felony charge that ever stuck. Uh, there were a few misdemeanor convictions, but nobody really got hurt as a result of being arrested, criminally hurt. That is, nobody got a big jail sentence out of it. Uh, everybody was released and able to go back and do what they were doing. And ultimately, it took 10 years and fighting with Michael Bloomberg when he was the, the mayor. But we finally got a judgment that put some money in the hands of people who were activists and we were very satisfied to settle the case on behalf of almost everybody who had been detained and who'd been arrested. Right. So that's about, that, that's about 2,000 people. 2,000 people. That's amazing, Marty. Uh, and you organized that. So I, I guess that gave you a lot of experience uh, having uh, the mass arrests, mass arrests moving forward to um, occupied Wall Street at Zuccotti Park, where uh, there were a number of mass arrests there. And I remember you saying, I got arrested three or four times uh, back then, but I remember you saying publicly that we're going to take them all to trial. So uh, how did you get involved in that uh, particular uh, uh, broad case of mass arrests? Again, through the same source of being the, uh, by now, a fairly well-known player with the Guild's Mass Defense Committee. Uh, the Guild and Occupy were natural allies in the perspective on American society and uh, social, economic, and racial problems that were endemic in the society. And so the Guild's Mass Defense Unit again went into motion, uh, recruited outside lawyers to work with us, and represented ultimately roughly the 3,000 people who got arrested during the course of Occupy. That includes you, that includes uh, several thousand other people. And again, we had the remarkable achievement of basically getting a little over 90% of the cases dismissed. One of the cases so, was, one of the cases was, um, uh, the case of uh, about 25 of us getting arrested, uh, protesting stop and frisk early on in Occupy. It was a branch of Occupy. It was organized at Occupy with Cornell West, Cor uh, uh, Cornell West and Carl Dix and, and others and myself. Uh, and uh, so we were arrested. The Guild was there. Uh, the Guild was was always there. The Guild is so special. Tell us about the, before you talk about that, just tell us a little bit about the history of the uh, National Lawyers Guild. Well, the Guild, the Guild begins in 1937. Um, that was the year when a bunch of progressive lawyers decided that they would no longer put up with the American Bar Association's prohibition on people of color joining the ranks. Black people could not join the ABA. So the National Lawyers Guild was set up as a national bar association that openly welcomed people of all races, creeds, and colors, and also sexes. Um, from, from that time, it, it had a history of uh, working strongly with the labor movement um, throughout the Roosevelt years. And then unfortunately, during the McCarthy years, the guild was devastated by accusations of uh, association with the Communist Party and all the effects that those kinds of McCarthyite accusations made. One of them was the uh, attorney, uh, uh, was somebody from the Lawyers Guild uh, that was um, a witness, and Joseph Welch, 
was, uh, was that time when he finally blew up at McCarthy. And I think, I don't know what, what his name was, Shine, I think, and uh, the client. And uh, he said, at long last, do you not have any sense of decency? He was a guilty, right? I don't, remember, I don't remember the name of the person who did that. Uh, it was certainly before my time in my activism as a lawyer. But uh, what, com what comes out of the 50s, Randy, is the rise of the civil rights movement and the Guild's recommitment to uh, civil rights and its ability to recruit young, young lawyers like myself at the time, both in the civil rights movement and in the anti-war movement. The Vietnam War had created tremendous divisions in the country. Uh, the Guild and all of its lawyers were vehemently opposed to the war. Um, and so the combination of the Guild being involved in those activities and the civil rights activities revived the, the forces of the Guild and made it available for the social movements of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. Well, it's a good thing we have them. When did you join the Guild? Uh, very shortly after I graduated from law school. Well, you went to law school with Rudy Giuliani, didn't you? Yes, Rudy Giuliani was one of my classmates. Okay. Um, and I, I, I'm here to tell you, he was pretty much of a jerk in law school, just like he is today. Did, did, you didn't think he'd be the type that would join the Guild? Oh, he certainly was not the type that would join the Guild. I mean, I, I did have some experience working with, Rand, uh, with, uh, um, with Rudy when he was a lawyer in private practice. Um, he was at Patterson Belknap, which is a very big firm that represented, we both had, we had a white collar case together and Rudy represented the president of the corporation and the corporation itself. And I, my client was the lowly secretary and throughout the proceedings, they were trying to stick my client with responsibility for a white collar crime fraud that really his client and the corporation were responsible for. So yeah. I had to watch my back every step of the way and make sure I didn't get a knife from Rudy during that period of time. Oh my God. I'm, ple I'm pleased to say that the case against my client was dismissed and his client took a plea. You have a pretty good record there, Marty, uh, with me, um, going back to, uh, I want to get back to 2011, the um, demonstration uh, uh, against, uh, or it was actually civil disobedience. We blocked a precinct on the uh, Upper West, uh, up in Harlem. Uh, and we all got arrested and the, the, the guild was there. They were observers. They're always there with their green hats. They're the observers. And then, um, you know, they're watching one of your, uh, one, of, one of those back then was Moira, uh, who uh, is now representing uh, Chelsea Manning. That's correct. Uh, but Randy, in fact, I think I got you convicted in that case rather than acquitted. Oh, yes, you did. We all got convicted in that case because... No, except, for, except for one guy. Yeah, the police informant. Jose, no, no, Jose, my client. Jose LaSalle? Yes, he was acquitted. He was. Interesting. Yes. Interesting that Jose LaSalle was acquitted. Uh, all right, I don't want to get into that, but uh, uh, I know but anyway, that you represented me. You got me on the witness stand. And we all use it, uh, you know, uh, as a place to vent uh, against the racist policies of the uh, Bloomberg administration. But they really haven't gone away today. I mean, they call it uh, broken windows. But the vast majority of the people today, isn't it disturbing to you, are still uh, vastly the majority are people of color? Yeah, Randy, that is a, a problem which is 
not only a police department problem, but it's a problem of the larger society um, and, and where crime comes from and how the police respond to it in different ways in different communities is one of the, the tales of our time. Um, we would expect that in a period of this, this COVID virus emergency, that the police department would recognize that people are merely people um, and that their arrest policies ought to be pretty much across the board equal, particularly well, not with the police department, which uh, does not have a majority white population. So I think there are changes that have been made, but I have seen some of the practices lately that really give me cause to pause about what's going on. Well, there was, uh, you know, some arrests that were really heavy handed arrests of people of color uh, recently that I saw. And then, uh, you know, people who are white and uh, upper, upper class, or upper middle class that are uh, not uh, following the rules closely, they're just given a polite warning. Uh, that's pretty emblematic of the way uh, the police have this, um, you know, dichotomy in, in their approach. That, that's, uh, that, that's an age old story. This is nothing new. Um, and it's something that stop and frisk was a major effort to put a crimp in, but it still exists. And uh, we have to still fight against it is all I can say. But you mentioned, you mentioned Moira before. Yes. Uh, it, during Occupy, Moira was still in law school. And, and uh, I was teaching her how to handle cases. And she was my main mentee, um, one of my main mentees, and how to do things in, in handling cases of people who got arrested. And it was my pleasure um, in recent times when Moira turned out to be Chelsea Manning's attorney, uh, when Chelsea was subpoenaed before the grand jury. Um, and uh, I was able to give her advice as to how to handle a heavy duty, serious political criminal case. And I was very pleased to say that she not only graduated my mentorship, but she shines with, with excellence. Yeah, she really is quite special, Marty. I, you know, um, uh, and, and that case is a one of the most celebrated case cases, political cases uh, in this country. Uh, so uh, kudos to you and kudos to her. Uh, and I'm I'm glad that uh, Chelsea is finally, after one year, uh, is out of, of solitary confinement. Um, so um, getting back to the stop and frisk, this we all got convicted, but you you. You um, went on to represent me when I got arrested by the police for filming three officers undercover, uh, shaken down. This in 2014 when I was running for governor, said that I threatened them with an umbrella when I, when I was videotaping them and they threw me in and it was 24 hours. They really slowed it down. I got a bump on my nose. They gave me the hard ride, the bumpy ride, uh, and they were very abusive. And then I get charged with like a felony uh, but that was finally resolved. And, you know, I, I wanted to go to trial, but it would have taken years to go to trial there in the Bronx, right? No, no, that was the case of the, uh, when you got arrested on the platform in the Bronx. That's the one I'm talking about. Yeah, the umbrella, yeah, yeah. the umbrella. Uh, we, we took a long time to fight that case. And finally, they wound up giving it the disposition that said case dismissed. Yeah, right. Now, that's pretty good, Randy. You yeah, know, well, I've you, only had, you kept so far, me out of only jail. You kept me out of jail, all right? That's the main thing, but I also kept you from getting convicted for nonsense. Right. That would have been, you know, seriously, they were, they were, 
I don't know why they just didn't dismiss it on its face, the Bronx prosecutors, and they saw that. Well, because they had a police officer whose story they tended to think was different from your story. Oh, I see. They don't think those guys lie, huh? All right, so let's... (laughs) Those guys never lie. Uh, if you look at the guy's record, he had a real, uh, real seedy record as a police officer, the guy who arrested me. Let's, um, let's move on to the so last one. Let's move on to the, what? Yeah, but, go ahead. I was, I was going to talk about how proud I was actually of representing you through all the, uh, uh, the period, uh, during the, uh, the Trump stuff and with the Yes, I want to get to that. I want to get to that. I'm, I'm going to say that I want to go to the beginning of that. I went to you right away when I somehow got involved like uh, Forrest Gump or Zelig in this uh, crazy drama with a Russiagate that I suddenly uh, am uh, about to get a subpoena to testify. Then I went to you and I hemmed and hawed. I didn't know what to do was, you know, and I think you're the one that probably convinced me at the end. You were, gonna, you were not going to take no for an answer that I had to plead the fifth. Yes, that brought I, me a whole bunch of more problems, Marty. If I had to take the fifth, it took it gave me a whole set of new problems because everyone thought I was guilty of something. In the part of Little Old New York, you'll find a thoroughfare. In the part of Little Old New York, that runs in two times square. A crazy quilt that Wall Street Jack built. If you've got a little time to spare, I'd like to take you there. Come and meet So um, we are talking about the uh, that whole shebang. I took the fifth. Well, I took the fifth, and then everybody got pissed at me on the left, thinking that I was culpable of something. Well, Randy, let me tell you one of the reasons, and the major reason that I urged you to take the fifth for that um, is one that the subpoena was issued by a committee that was controlled by Republicans, and all what would happen if you went before that committee, is they would smear you and bring up your past and call you a rat and not give you the opportunity to speak. Not even the Democrats would give you the opportunity to speak. So my good sense to preserve your self-worth was to keep you away from that committee as much as we possibly could. And if you wanted to talk about what happened with you and Roger Stone, we do it in a forum that is friendly a form that we can control. And ultimately, that's what worked. Well, also, I was very fearful that, uh, that uh, Mr. Stone was going to drag uh, Margaret Ratner Kunstler into this. Yes, uh, indeed. And that, with good reason. And it's a good thing he never did, right? But he did, right? He had no choice, you know. Yeah. You had no choice. And, and by the time that they decided that the prosecutors, who turned out to be a fairly ethical and professional group of people, uh, by the time that they looked into it, it was clear 
that what Stone had been holding over you was whether he was going to disclose Margie's name. That had to come out. And that little piece of extortion was blown up to be what it is, a bunch of uh, bullshit. Right. Well, uh, but she still got dragged into it. She still had to uh, uh, testify in court. And I really did not want to bring her name into this because people make uh, extrapolations here. Randy, uh, Randy, 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 Margie has had two children and she was married to Bill Consley. You don't think she's got a thick skin? Yeah, she, I, I guess she does. Um, Margaret Radnikon certainly does. Uh, and she's been a great lawyer, but she does not, like most lawyers I know, does not seek publicity, uh, like most comedians I know. that well, did. Certainly, there's some comedians I know who only seek publicity. Yes, well, I hope I'm not one of those. Well, but, yeah, uh, I, hope you, I hope you are, Randy, that's your living. Yeah, well, you got, you got to promote causes, and most of them are done in the court of public opinion, which is something that I learned from Bill Kunstner, and it's something that you already knew, and that's where you're able to take these cases that's and write these policies. I also learned that from Bill Kunstner and from Arthur Kanoy, uh, yeah. to, to be a lawyer and to be a, a public person and to use the law to put forth public positions, to use the law as a political tool. And that's what they taught me, and that's what I've been doing my entire career. And both of them were guild lawyers as well, Absolutely, right? absolutely. Well, you dedicated your life. You could have made a fortune as a corporate lawyer. Uh, where was it in your background, Marty, uh, growing up that prompted you to do all of this uh, type of uh, really social legal work? I mean, if you really want to dig deep into it, it probably comes from my mother's side of the family. Um, her father was a union organizer. He was one of the original founders of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, along with David Dubinsky. And oh. so throughout my growing up, union side and union collectives and things of that nature were part of the household process. So I was sort of a liberal, as it were, uh, the union having come through the McCarthy period of denouncing the communists, of course. But I didn't know that till later years. But... So there was a whole union background to my growing up. Right. And so that's it when you got in. And, and of course, in the 50s and the 60s, that, that was a, a time that, uh, you know, people made the, those choices and they had, they had those circumstances, those political circumstances uh, that were happening that would shape uh, their mindset. I guess that would be you as well. And you probably... Uh, that's, not really, that's not really true, Randy. I, mean, I was sort of predisposed to it, but really what really turned my, my mind around was the year at, right after law school, when I graduated from law school in 1968, I was still eligible to be drafted. I was only 25 years old. And so I was looking around desperately for a way to avoid the draft other than going to Canada uh, because I was eligible till I was 26 years old. So I found that I could be a VISTA. Um, a volunteer in service to America, which is now known as AmeriCorps. Um, so I became a VISTA lawyer, and I was sent by the United States government to be trained as a VISTA lawyer to Chicago in August of 1968. Oh, my goodness. What a period of time. So I was, in Chicago. In, I was in Chicago in August of 68 at the same time that the Democratic National Convention was taking place. I was there to be trained as a lawyer, but tell that to the Chicago police, 
who chased and gassed me and did a wonderful job of radicalizing me from the liberal positions I was in to coming around the next day wanting to tear down every institution that the society had built that had grown up to allow the Chicago police and the institutions that they represented to exist. So you witnessed that all of that turmoil in Chicago in the summer of 68. Yes. Wow. I was there. Wow. Wow. I, I can, I can I see that. Not, I was not there as a demonstrator. I was there as a lawyer. Wow. But, but what you saw must have really turned your stomach. Well, I got chased and gassed, like I told you. Yeah, I'm saying. But just besides that, just watching everything unfold there, was that having an imprint uh, on your psyche as well? A substantial imprint, yes. All right. We're talking with Marty Stoller, civil rights attorney, a free a speech attorney, Randy Credico's uh, attorney for the last 10 years. <laughs> still still uh, in arrears to my attorney. Um, uh, Marty, I want to go back uh, and we're going to play Chicago. That's We're going to take you out with uh, Chicago by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. All right. A little pastiche from that. Uh, but I want before we close, Marty, I want to talk about your you know, everyone has a signature uh, case that people remember them by. Kunster was 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 the uh, Chicago uh, Seven. Daryl was the Scopes, and and, and Leopold and Loeb, and Richard Dana was uh, the Anthony Burns case. Yours was the Handshoe. So, for people who don't know about the Handshoe, tell us what it is and what you got done. Well, uh, that's probably my most famous case, other than you, Randy, of course. <laughs> Mine's infamous, but tell us, just give us a, a brief background of that case. And back, in the, uh, back in the late 60s and the early 70s, I and the group of lawyers that we were working with uh, started, were representing people who had impacted with the New York City Police Department as a result of their First Amendment activities. And we started collecting dossiers and stories about how they'd been fingered by what was being called the Red Squad. Um, which were essentially political police that would that would target people at demonstrations, et cetera. It culminated with our finding out through the Panther 21 trial, that is the, the leadership of the New York City, of the Manhattan Black Panther Party was indicted for a big conspiracy. In the course of that, we got documentation that proved that the Manhattan chapter of the Black Panther Party was founded by the New York City Police Department. That was really the tip of the iceberg and that led us over. And so myself and Jethro Eisenstein, two young lawyers at the time, put together a class action lawsuit that said the police department has no business engaging in the disruption of First Amendment activities or the investigation of First Amendment activities. They're there to do crime. They're not there to investigate politics. And we went to federal court to try to make that point and prove that point. We were just a couple of park lawyers, but, uh, and without any kind of background or support, but we fought the case and fought the case and fought the case for many years and got a little bit of assistance from uh, Paul Chevenier and Franklin Siegel, who started out working on the case with me as a law student. He's now a professor at the uh, CUNY uh, the Law School in Queens. Um, in 1985, we settled the case. And what the settlement essentially says is to the police department, the only, if it's pure political activity, you cannot investigate it. If it is pure criminal activity, go ahead and investigate it. That's your job. But where there's a mix of political and criminal activity, go to this thing called 
the authority and get a warrant, get an administrative warrant, prove to the authority that there's some criminal aspect of the political activity that you want to investigate. That's kind of what the guidelines said. And in 1985, they were put into place and they actually kind of worked. We'd find them violating the guidelines every once in a while. Um, we'd go back to court and say, hey, judge, they're, they're messing up. They're violating the guidelines. They'd say, oh, no, we're not. And then finally they'd say, oh, yes, we are. Um, we'd win. They'd say that they'd reform themselves. And off we went up until 9-11. Uh, in 2002, actually in 2000, after the 9-11, Giuliani or Bloomberg brought in to be the head of the New York City Police Department Intelligence Division, a guy who had been a lifelong practitioner of the arts at the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, so the head of the Intelligence Division in New York, who's responsible for investigating political activity and complying with the Hanshoe guidelines, is somebody who's never seen the First Amendment, has never had to deal with the First Amendment, and really doesn't understand it. That led to the abuses of the investigation of the Muslim community, the Muslim religion, to a police department mindset that said, if you're a Muslim, then you're a potential terrorist by virtue of that alone. Um, ultimately, the Associated Press blew that up, brought it out. We went back to court. Uh, and said, judge, you know, these guidelines that, that are in place that you've allowed to be relaxed because of 9-11 are being abused by the police department. And in the, that's what we did. And the judge said, you're right. Um, and we put together uh, the guidelines that are more firmly in place and they still exist today. Uh, it's a court-ordered supervision of the way the police department conducts political intelligence activity. Now, is, is all of this in the past, um, uh, you know, the police snooping and, and their surveillance uh, of these peaceful groups, uh, who's really in hidden hand in all of that? Is it the head of the uh, police department, the, the, the police chief commissioner, or is it the mayor, or is it somebody from Washington, D.C.? Who really is uh, in charge of uh, these kind of operations in the end? It really is local, um, certainly since 9-11. Uh, the New York City Police Department has sort of operated as an independent organization um, so that if people are involved in political activity and they, they skirt uh, toward the edge of the law, they, they are successful in it and they call the police's attention, they're likely to draw the attention not only of the NYPD, but also the FBI. Uh, they both run, they run parallel intelligence operations. Um, you know, it finally took the FBI until maybe this year to recognize that there are right-wing terrorist organizations out there that, oh my goodness, could be worthy of something to look into as a criminal matter. Uh, NYPD, we think, has gone into that direction, but we don't really know. Right. There's a lot of that uh, right-wing uh, extremism uh, that engages in domestic terrorism. Uh, they just don't like to call it that. They like to go after leftists. Marty Stoller, uh, this is... Uh, our ongoing series, Assange Countdown to Freedom. So I have to uh, ask you a few questions. Uh, if, if Assange is extradited to the U.S. Um, and uh, most likely would be convicted here in Eastern Virginia, what kind of blow to the First Amendment would that represent to you? Randy, it's not a question of if he's convicted. 
it being a blow. The fact that he's charged in the first place is the major blow. I mean, what Julian and, and Assange and WikiLeaks did in the case in which he's charged is no different than what every major news outlet, whatever newspaper and TV and, and, and internet outlet does in obtaining information and making it available to the public. He didn't do anything different. He didn't get paid for it. He didn't pay for it. Um, he's got a different form of disseminating information than New York Times, but it's the same damn thing. So his merely being charged is what does the damage to the First Amendment. It's, it's chilling, though, uh, that uh, this is happening right now. And, uh, you know, there have been uh, cases of uh, people being charged under the Espionage Act uh, over the last, under Obama. Obama did not. Well, Obama, Obama, Obama was a major player with that whenever there was a leaker. I mean, Chelsea Manning was charged under the Espionage Act, although her charge was in the form of court-martial because she was subject to military jurisdiction. Right. Uh, Thomas Brake and others were charged under the Espionage Act. But what's, uh, what, what's interesting here is the first publisher ever to be charged. And so that really does uh, send chills up my spine. That, that if, you, if, you, if, you think, if you think about what could have happened in Watergate with Nixon, I mean, the, the Times and the Washington Post were a hair's breadth away from being criminally charged uh, by the, the Nixon Justice Department because of the, the Pentagon Papers. Um, they were really close to being charged. And if you recall, uh, the attorney general at the time is John Mitchell, <laughs> who's, who is about as trustworthy a political player as Bill Barr is these days. Right. Yeah, Bill Barr is very scary. Uh, would, uh, Bill, Barr, Bill Barr is 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 incredibly bad. Right. I mean, for a long time. Undermines every respect. He undermines if there's respect for law in this country, he undermines and sends it right down the toilet. Right. Uh, so uh, would he have uh, would he have a good chance of making this case in the Eastern District of Virginia and, and being exonerated, Julian Assange? Uh, if we can uh, get the right lawyer to represent him, Randy, and we get the right jury to hear the case, I hope he never even makes it over here. The fact that he that he's being brought across the pond to stand trial in the United States um, is outrageous. And it, it should not be allowed to happen. Let's hope the Brits keep them there. All right. Well, that's uh, Marty Stoller. Marty, we're going to have, you, have to get you back on uh, very soon. I want to thank you uh, for being on and for all of the great work, not just representing me and keeping me out of jail, <laughs> but for keeping a lot of people out of jail, uh, sacrificing uh, throughout your uh, legal career, uh, economic gain uh, for social, uh, social uh, gain and for... Um, you know, racial uh, justice uh, and social justice. You, you've been a real lion there, uh, Marty. And uh, we're going to take you out right now. Thank you, Randy. That That's period of time in 68, Marty, uh, in Chicago uh, with uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And we'll be right back with some final comments. Marty Stoller, thanks a lot, buddy. Okay, Randy, thank you. Chicago just to sing In a land that's known as freedom How can such a thing be fair? Won't you please come to Chicago For the help that we can bring
Okay, Chicago, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Uh, I'm Randy Credical. This is Randy Credical, uh, live on the fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom, episode 23, uh, with uh, Nathan Fuller uh, and uh, Robert Boyle and uh, Marty Stoller. And I want to thank them for being on the show. I also want to thank uh, Kelly Lane out of North Carolina, who's been engineering this show since we got out of the studio. We may not go back to the studio. She's doing such a great job, as is Jimmy Sunderland uh, out there north, uh, not North Carolina, but in Lake Arrowhead. She's, so she's like 3,000 miles away. And then we have Margaret Ratner Kunzer, who does the description. And then Sarah Kunzer is our webmaster. So I want to thank all four of those uh, women uh, for uh, being part of this and doing such a great job. And they have been ever since uh, we uh, left the studio and uh, doing it now. Uh, away from the studio indoors, uh, locked lock down. Uh, I just want to remind you to get this book here. Uh, this is um, uh, In Defense of Julian Assange. It goes uh, to a good cause. Uh, try to get this book here. It's edited by Tariq Ali and Margaret Ratner Kunstler, and it's a great book with about 30 different people that are very special who wrote uh, essays and wrote stories, personal stories about Julian Assange. Um, I think that's just about it. Uh, I will say, uh, we, this is 23, we, and we want to continue, but I, I really do urge because, you know, we uh, have uh, Jimmy Sunderland, uh, who does the editing. She, her computer is like old, and, and she does the editing on an old computer. We're, we're trying to upgrade it, and, and so we, we de definitely need your support so, uh, you know, we can pay the bills. Nobody's looking to make money here. I've never made a nickel off. I've lost money. But um, so uh, if you'd like this show to go on uh, for the next uh, four months, uh, which is what we plan to do right through the next hearing, uh, we certainly could use uh, a small uh, little uh, contribution uh, here and there. So go to the website, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. Uh, I'll see you uh, in a couple of days, folks. Thank you very much for staying, uh, staying active watching this program. All right, and get out there, get involved. Help out Julian. It's very important. Goodbye. It's a medley of two songs. Summer journeys to Niagara and to other places aggravate all my cares. We'll save our fares. I'm a cozy little flat in what is known as Old Manhattan. We'll settle down right here in town. We'll have Manhattan, the Bronx, and Staten Island too. It's lovely going through the Subway charms us so when Broadway breezes blow to and fro. And tell me what street compares with Mott Street in July. Sweet push carts gently gliding by the great big city. 